This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, Pacific nations push for loss and damage fund as world leaders gather in Egypt for climate talks. Fijians anxious over their political future as the country counts down to the national election. And a new street drug is worrying health officials in Solomon Islands. More on those stories coming up. But first, the Pacific are centre stage once again at the UN Climate Talks where Australia is bidding to host the 2026 event. But one of the sticking points at the talks is a loss and damage fund. What exactly is it and how does it work are the key questions being asked in Egypt. And as Jordan Fennell explains, while Australia is backing discussions, it hasn't committed to this new initiative. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has a warning for the world. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. As the earth heats up, storms are becoming worse, rising seas are eroding more land, fires are burning more fiercely and floods are more frequent. And this is getting pretty expensive. Over the last decade, the estimated cost of disasters exceeded US $3 trillion and the Asia-Pacific region accounted for 44% of those costs. So a coalition of low-income countries are calling on wealthier nations to pay for climate damages. Here's Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General Henry Puna. I'm here with the Pacific leaders to reinforce the call to the international community to recommit to the Paris goals that were set out in the Paris Accord on mitigation, on adaptation, loss and damage. This idea of having a fund to help pay for climate damage isn't new. Research fellow with ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, George Carter, told the ABC's The Drum Program that this idea dates back more than a decade. So developed countries in 2009 set the goal at $100 billion. We have not met this goal. He says meetings like the UN's Conference of Parties are important for keeping rich nations accountable to their broken promises. And 100 billion is only the floor to allow for not only developed, but especially developing countries like in the Pacific, the funds needed to not only adapt, but the fact that many of these communities and and sometimes um, in the future countries will be underwater or loss of land or loss of culture because of these climate impacts. But it's been a fight to even get the discussion of a loss and damage fund onto this year's COP27 agenda. Carlos Lee Moresi, who is part of the Pacific Island Forum's Resilience Development Finance Program, says the night before the conference's official start, delegates argued late into the night about the wording of the discussion. The discussions got quite heated on the day before the opening, and the sticky point really is around the need from the developed country's perspective that the loss and damage discussion should not lead to compensation and liability, which is an undefined quantum if you, if you want to uh, talk about why there's a resistance on that particular aspect. While we can identify from the Pacific what we mean by loss and damage, for them, it's they, they view it as an uh, endless uh, call for 
compensation for all things related to climate change. After many back and forths between different delegations, the wording was finally agreed on and a discussion on damage and loss was officially added to this year's agenda. But what will a damage and loss fund even mean for the Pacific? Head of policy at ActionAid, Catherine Tu, explains. So loss and damage is about when countries need to rebuild and recover from climate disasters. So these disasters can be sudden onset events like cyclones or slow onset events like droughts. And these are pushing uh, insurmountable costs uh, onto countries and communities and they're being put into debt and poverty. ActionAid is calling on wealthy countries like Australia to support what we call a loss and damage financing facility at the UN level. And this body will deliver funds to those who need it most so that those on the front lines of the climate crisis get the funding they receive to respond to the disasters. Mr Morassi from the Pacific Islands Forum says that the hope is that money would go to the Pacific Resilience Facility, which is being established by PIF to direct funds to communities. What it will mean for them is hopefully that they can sustain livelihoods, they can maintain their cultural practices for, for as long as they like, for as long as they live. They can maintain their ancestral, uh, ancestral homes, um, they can have those linkages to cultural practices. Action Aid's Catherine too says this is especially important for women and children in the Pacific. When families run out of money um, to uh, send their kids to school, girls are often the first to be pulled out of school if they have to spend money on recovery. And when there's drought, for example, women also have to travel further to collect water and find food for their families, which also exposes them to greater um, chances of gender-based violence. While previous COP climate meetings have focused on keeping global heating below one. 1.5 degrees, scientists now warn that the rise in temperature is inevitable and that the damage that will follow is irreversible. The ANU's George Carter says reducing global heating still needs to be a focus despite the bleak outlook. If you look at the trajectory of what's been happening over the years, it's slowly getting there, but it's too slow. The actions need to happen now and there's much more urgencies. And that's what, uh, you know, the main message here at these negotiations. And Mr. Moresi says that's why support from developed countries for adaptation strategies is critical during this COP27. We have very high expectations, but we also know that the reality is, is uh, there's a lot of pushback. So while we're not naive to the push that we're getting back from the, from the developed countries, we are encouraged by the fact that we even got into the agenda. And the discussion, while we may not get a result straight away, we're definitely on the pathway of getting there. The Pacific Island Forum's Carlos Lee Moresi speaking there to reporter Jordan Fennell. It's just one month ago until Fijians head to the polls, and there's one main issue playing out in the minds of many people. It's not who they're going to vote for or even why. As Marion Farr reports, for many Fijians, the big question is what will happen after their votes are cast. On December 14, Fijians will head to the polls, casting their vote in the country's national election. And with months of anticipation, they've had plenty of time to think about what matters to them most. I've got a lot. I've got a lot to talk about. I think the ability to create job locally is the real issue. I think for me, the first and foremost thing is about democracy and accountability. Freedom of speech, freedom of opinion. I think a lot of people have views that are not what our current leadership would like to hear. And so they're afraid of expressing it. Personally, I, I've already made up my mind, you know. Um, 
uh, this is what I want. From unemployment to the state of the economy and services for everyday people, a range of important issues are set to sway voters' decisions. But another thing on people's minds is what might happen after their votes are cast. When you go for grog sessions, you go for like friends meet up and you know, the, the hot topic right now is elections and I'm not going to lie to you, like we, we talk about these things. Elizabeth Siddal is a 28-year-old woman from Suva, the nation's capital. What's going to happen on the 14th of December or what's going to happen a week after when we get the final results, you know? Is our children uh, going to be at risk or is our community going to be at risk? She isn't the only one having these sorts of conversations. 29-year-old Josiah Tokoni is feeling a mix of emotions about the election. Part of me is excited that the uh, election is uh, around the corner, but also at the same time, the fear of being suppressed more or the volatility or the instability of our political landscape. There are rumours that are going on that kind of instil fear to most of us, the fear of another uh, possibility of another coup, God forbid that from happening. In the past 40 years, Fiji has experienced four military coups, one of them led by the incumbent Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama. His main contender in this election, Sitaveni Rambuka, also instigated two military coups in 1987. Both leaders insist the past is behind them, but the memories are still alive for voters like 22-year-old Kava Masalagi. There's no proof that there'll be another coup or that something might happen, but it's just a belief that these kind of things could happen, that there's a possibility. The ABC has contacted Fiji's police force to ask about security surrounding the election, but we haven't received a response. Alicia Bano, a 36-year-old woman from Nandi, understands people's concerns. It stems from older people who who have been around since the first coup that happened in Fiji. So it's like, you know, there's fear from, from a lot of people that, oh, because we're going into election period, something bad will happen. But she says Fiji has held peaceful elections consistently since 2014, and she wants citizens to feel reassured. Nothing bad happened in 2014, nothing bad happened in 2018. And when I say nothing bad, as in there weren't riots, we didn't have another coup, the country didn't shut down. She says keeping the peace is everyone's responsibility. I think it's very important for us as citizens of the country, as people who want democracy, as people who want things to go as smoothly as possible, we need to make sure that we're having the right conversations and not encouraging people to, you know, go and riot or things like that. I mean, if if you have something you want to speak about, to protest about, there are very peaceful ways of doing that. Ms Bano is encouraging people to focus on policies and making informed decisions about who they want to vote for. For her, this election is all about holding politicians to their word. It's a lot of promises of, I come into power, I'll do this, or if you vote for me, I'll do this. But just in terms of accountability, like how accountable are you when you actually get into power? Others, like 37-year-old Shellen Manny, want to see more employment opportunities. After six months of volunteering with Fiji's Ministry of Employment, she herself hasn't been able to find a job. Being unemployed is, is very stressful. Only if they were they were in my shoes, they could understand. But yet they are not in my shoes. They're in a better shoes. The shoes they are wearing is Gucci's and I'm not wearing Gucci's. I'm wearing flops. With elderly parents to care for, 
it's hard for her to make ends meet. Kava Masalagi is also worried about the elderly. I have my grandfather who's on social welfare and he receives about $100 a month and he has diapers, he has medication to get and these things are not cheap and he is solely dependent on that. She's looking forward to the election. For me, I'm excited and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that there'll be a change. But others are happy with how the current government is performing, including Elizabeth Siddall. Because I have seen the current government uh, do its magic, especially during the global pandemic, and how it has been able to assist not only the, the people that are working, but the people who actually uh, were laid off due to the global crisis. What the outcome of the election will be is anyone's guess. But passion among voters is one thing that's guaranteed. Marion Farr reporting. Giving birth can be a daunting experience, and if you're dealing with doctors and midwives who don't speak your language, it's often overwhelming. In Australia, health professionals and women from migrant backgrounds, including those from the Pacific, are calling for better access to trained interpreters who can attend pregnancy appointments. Dubravka Volodir with this report. In a small Victorian town, a mother of five who wants to be known as Liv says she often felt hopeless when she went to her pregnancy checkups. Part of the Karen community from Myanmar South, the 39-year-old says there wasn't always someone to interpret what the doctors or midwives were saying. Yeah, I keep changing the interpreter or sometimes unable to communicate or understand. So at the time, I feel so sad and also so hopeless. Liv is among the one-third of mothers in Australia who were born overseas, including Pacific Islanders. Yvonne Peacock is a Pacific nurse and midwife in Blacktown in Sydney's west. The area is one of the most multicultural ones in Sydney. And while there are interpreters for Pacific languages, access, she says, is an issue for some women. It just depends on the availability of the actual interpreter at the time. So the service is there, but it just depends on who is available. She says it's less of an issue for second-generation Pacific women. Melbourne-based obstetrician Dr. Oliver Daly says one in five women he sees are from non-English-speaking backgrounds. With the limited number of available qualified interpreters willing to work on site, it's really difficult for health services to provide for the range of languages patients speak. And he says time constraints don't help. A 15-minute antenatal appointment is challenging enough. And having an interpreter on top of this makes it more difficult. These challenges can affect the care migrant women receive. Women from migrant backgrounds do have poorer maternal and child health outcomes than the general population. Dr Regina Torres-Quiazon is the Acting Executive Director at the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health in Melbourne. She says if women do not attend antenatal visits early, they're at risk of diabetes and having more interventions during labour, such as having a caesarean. Especially in rural and regional areas, we know that, I mean, structurally, that um, interpreters aren't always skilled up to understand and translate properly for migrant women, especially on specific issues around pregnancy and antenatal care. Language barriers, she says, are partly to blame.
We know also that there are a lack of female interpreters and female interpreters are often the ones that migrant women would prefer to speak to about very sensitive topics. And there are concerns that some interpreters may be someone that they know in the community. So together, these are issues that really put women's health at risk. Liana Papoutsis, who worked as an interpreter for 16 years and is now a consultant, says it's hard to train interpreters who are often individual contractors. There is the odd hospital here and there that may put on interpreters on an ongoing basis. That's the exception, not the norm. She says one solution would be for healthcare services to boost the number of interpreters on staff. For hospitals to actually employ them direct. So hospitals can say, look, we want to have X amount of interpreters ongoing. Dr. Regina Torres-Quiazon has a similar idea. The interpreting system needs to be tweaked and to ensure that interpreters are on proper contracts. There is stability in that profession. And for Pacific nurse and midwife Yvonne Peacock, the key, she says, is reaching women early in their pregnancies. From my own experience, it's education, and that education is the cultural awareness. In the meantime, Karen Mother Liv has one message for other migrant women. Don't try to suffer them. Just go. Just try to communicate with the body gesture. Be brief. For now, she and others are navigating the current health services as best as they can. Dubravka Volodair with that report. Health officials in Solomon Islands are raising concerns about a homemade drug that's being used by students in some schools. The drug, called Copen, is reportedly being made locally using tobacco and household substances. One doctor who's seen several children hospitalized after taking the drug is calling for the government to support research into its effects, as Mackenzie Smith reports. The new drug Copen was first reported on the streets of Honiara last November when the Solomon Star reported a nine-year-old girl had almost died after taking the substance. But a year on, incidents involving Copen are increasing, and the drug's also been found in schools in Western Province. Pedicle Togomai is a doctor at the National Referral Hospital in Honiara. He's treated several cases of children aged from 6 to 10 years old in recent weeks who have taken Copen, and parents are worried. They get influenced and then they try, try out that, uh, that drug, that, that Copen. And they usually come in because they feel sleepy and they're uh, they dizzy. And that's why they presented to the hospital. Health officials say Copen contains tobacco and products like toothpaste, food colouring and lime powder. But taking action against the drug is difficult as it is not listed as an illicit substance. Emily Darafour is a research officer with the Ministry of Women, Youth, Children and Family Affairs. It's something that is legally at the moment and currently we do not have the specific provision in our legislation to stop producing these drugs. Ms Dadafort says the drug's introduction reflects how desperate people are in Solomon Islands to make ends meet. I think the selling of this drug is something that people uh, in the community are doing it, although uh, it's not something that uh, it is not, it's not acceptable. Um, but then I think most of the people who produce it um, it's one of the ways that they can get money too. So um, most say this is how they can end um, 
they, they can earn their living by selling the product. And uh, most have raised, you know, their, 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 their opinions that they won't stop until such a time where there is a law to stop them. Schools in Solomon Islands are also starting to introduce measures to combat the spread of coping. The Solomon Star reported in August that more than 100 children from a school in Western Province were questioned after some of them were caught selling coping. Ms Darafoa wants stakeholders, including police and schools, to come together to find a solution. That could include a study on the drug's long-term effects for children. Early signs of taking the drugs uh, range from, uh, you know, different um, so we look at uh, the effect on children's concentration and performance at school is very low and it's reducing and also uh, some of the reports that we have um, it affect the psychological psychological disorder some kids who tend to be very active would now withdraw and isolate themselves in their rooms. Dr. Pedico Togomai agrees saying more research is needed. This issue is a serious issue where rightful authorities should be taken more drastic measures and like uh, get someone to study what exactly the content of those uh, of those uh, coping and what the substance uh, they uh, that the kids are exposing to it and uh, see what's the impact on it. Togumai is worried coping could lead school children to other harder drugs like marijuana and homebrew. That was Mackenzie Smith reporting. The Melanesian region is home to some of the world's most rare and interesting frogs. In fact, there are more than 500 different types of frogs living in Melanesia alone. Priyanka Srinivasan spoke to Griffith University senior lecturer Paul Oliver about why Melanesia is such a frog hotspot. If you look around the world, the areas that have lots of frogs, there's a few common patterns you see, and, and Melanesia shares these things. First, I guess it's, it's the tropics, um, but most of the Melanesia is pretty wet, covered in rainforest. Um, and another thing that really seems to correlate with high diversity in frogs and other animals in particular, because it's important to emphasise that Melanesia is what we're finding out is for plants, lots of different groups of um, animals and, and plants. Melanesia is a world hotspot of diversity. Lots of these areas are really complicated. They've got all these islands, they've got all these mountains, they've got all these different little regions that different frogs and plants can get stuck in and they become separate species. So all these things come together to derive the region as uh, an incredible and really important hotspot of diversity of global significance. Yeah, when, when you talk about the small islands, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of, of sort of uh, Darwin's old research looking at evolution and, and the finches um, he found on the Galapag- Galapagos Islands, I believe. Perhaps you know more than me, Paul. But is it sort of that same um, thing that's happening in, in Melanesia and these islands, that evolution right. in these small islands is pushing these different species? I guess the key thing to emphasise is, yeah, there's a tendency for things to get isolated. So if you sort of think, like Melanesia, depending on how you approach it, that the area's been around for millions of years, it's got this complicated history. And, you know, some of the, the models of how the area shaped through time suggest that there was actually, for instance, New Guinea, the, the big island in the middle, um, a lot of the models suggest that that was actually made up of several different islands, independent islands. And so all these things, especially if you're a little frog, like, you know, they, they don't like to disperse across salt water. They, a lot of the frogs in New Guinea are really, really small. And a lot of them do this really cool thing where they actually don't have tadpoles. So you can walk around in the forest at night and they do. sometimes if you look at a little brown frog, oh, it's a little brown frog. But then you look closely and they're actually carrying little tiny baby froglets on their back. 
So there's all these things that come together that sort of make frogs in New Guinea more likely to get stuck in little isolated areas. And as that happens over time, exactly as you're describing with the finches, they become isolated, they evolve into separate species. And this complexity and this diversity and the fact that the area is just a great place to be a frog because it's mm -hmm. wet and tropical all come together to drive this emerging picture of an incredible hotspot of diversity. I was looking looking this up in preparation to chat to you, Paul, and I, I think um, there's the smallest frog ever is in Papua New Guinea, and yeah, it's yeah, quite unique, isn't it, because it's um, the smallest vertebrate, is that right? Yes, there's a bit of a race to the bottom happening of, like, my frog is smaller than your frog, <laughs> but certainly... Um, what happens, this group seems to be particularly predisposed or likely to evolve this thing we call miniaturization, And so there's multiple different lineages within this huge radiation of frogs in Melanesia. So I've, we estimate there's over 400 species in the group. There's multiple different lineages that seem to have evolved these really, really tiny sizes. That was Griffith University Senior Lecturer Paul Oliver speaking to the ABC's Priyanka Srinivasan. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Review for this week. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the region. <music>